Archaeologists often make it a standard practice to uh, seek permission from landowners to do work at these locations without consulting with the indigenous peoples whose heritage they're studying. Moving archaeological excavations in a more inclusive direction is what's needed, frankly. Long before Europeans ever set foot on the land that is now known as Maine, indigenous people had thriving communities all along the coast and across the entire state. Archaeological digs have been done on shell mounds near the water and the remnants of those communities inland. Traditionally, those digs were done by Euro-American archaeologists who had a notable influence on how those stories were told. Bonnie Newsom, a member of the Penobscot Nation and an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Maine, is working at the forefront of a movement to change that dynamic and reframe those stories, helping present-day indigenous people tell the stories of their ancestors. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Maine Question Podcast. The shells and other artifacts left behind in these communities reveal a fascinating story. Thousands of years ago, people were catching swordfish in the Gulf of Maine with limited technology and gear. Tools that originated thousands of miles north in Canada have been found in Maine, indicating the presence of trade, perhaps. Mount Kineo on Moosehead Lake was an ancient home depot of sorts for Native American groups, with raw materials key for tool making and other uses. Those facts and many others have been uncovered by Newsom and her colleagues with help from a lot of students over the years on these archaeological digs. In this episode of The Main Question, we'll chat with Newsom about that work, along with Isaac St. John, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians, and a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick, about changing the public perception of Wabanaki stories and reconnecting indigenous people with their past. Well, thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Maybe we, let's start here for both of you. Can you paint the picture for us in terms of how the history and the story of indigenous people on the North American continent has been told? Who has sort of controlled the narrative and how has that skewed what we know about this story? Bonnie, maybe let's start with you. Well, the story of uh, indigenous peoples in North America has really been constructed largely by non-indigenous archaeologists. And here in the Northeast, inquiry into kind of past indigenous lifeways really began in the 1800s and uh, by uh, naturalists, and these were generally wealthy men of European descent uh, interested in the pursuit of knowledge in the natural sciences. Um, and so oftentimes they would conduct excavations um, throughout the region to build collections of indigenous material culture. Um, and they uh, they do this for places like the Smithsonian Institute or Harvard University. Um, and so engagement with indigenous peoples at that time was really non-existent. I think um, because of that, the control of the information and control of the narrative has largely been from a, a, a Western viewpoint. Over time, theoretical uh, foundations and underpinnings for archaeology have evolved and, um, you know, they've gone through some changes. But in, in Maine, it's been primarily, uh, yes, uh, kind of a Western uh, pursuit. Now, Isaac, as a member of the Native American community, you obviously look at this in a different way than, than, than many of us do. Can you talk about 
how uh, that story has been skewed that, that you've been able to observe. Yeah, and I just want to mention that Bonnie is also um, Penobscot, right, Bonnie? Yes, yes. Okay, oh, good, all right. And so that learning about archaeology sort of came from a secondhand source, archaeology and uh, indigenous culture, because of where my generational knowledge came from. There wasn't a lot of continuance of cultural understanding, so I had to learn learn about it from other sources other than within the community. And uh, this really shaped how archaeological knowledge should be given out or learned about in terms of from who it's from and by who it's from, and really got me on the, um, the path to doing this sort of work that I'm doing now, having Native, Native people learn, learn about their past from Native people and archaeology. Does taking control of that story, does that sort of reconnect Indigenous people with their story? And if so, how, how, how is that going, do you think? Yeah, I think it takes control of the story in ways that um, sort of Western influences would have made it into something more fantastical or something not human, you know? It makes it more of a story rather than person. Um, and by learning about um, history and culture from the people that are actually living it, um, it creates more of a personality and more of a uh, humanizing factor about it all and not having to parse through, you know, uh, being one with the earth, that sort of thing, when you're learning it from your own people. Many people might not be aware that, but there along the coast of Maine, many uh, shell middens that have been uh, discovered. Bonnie, maybe you can talk about uh, the archaeological digs of those shell middens. How have they been handled in the past and have issues arisen from how they were treated? Shell middens, or sometimes we refer to them as shell mounds. Middens has um, a connotation um, linked to garbaging behavior, and not all of these locations are kind of trash dumps. And that's um, something that uh, Isaac and I and other indigenous archaeologists are working to shift that kind of thinking. These shell heaps often span millennia and represent indigenous use of space over millennia. And I think they've been handled really uh, up to now as repositories of both anthropological and paleo-environmental information, which is certainly true, and they are valuable repositories for that. But part of the reason um, that we're interested in these places is that for indigenous peoples, they are places of our ancestors. And so places where we can engage with our ancestors in a way that perhaps Um, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do otherwise. And, you know, archaeologists often make it a standard practice to uh, seek permission from landowners to do work at these locations without consulting with the indigenous peoples whose heritage they're studying. And I thought, and I think moving archaeological excavations in a more inclusive direction is what's needed, frankly. Maybe this is for both of you, but whoever wants to sort of take this one, can you talk about the story of the red paint people? Isaac, do you want me to take that? Okay. (laughs) Um, So the red paint people is a term that um, I personally hope will fade away into non-existence eventually. Um, And this is a concept that arose in the early part of the 20th century by 
um, archaeologists who publicized the phrase uh, when they encountered large quantities of red ochre associated with burials in Maine. And so archaeologically the term really refers to a distinct group of people uh, who occupied Maine roughly between 5,000 and 3,800 years ago. Um, and as you know, kind of the story goes, they were coastally adapted, they hunted swordfish, they fashioned these unique uh, and elaborate grave goods, um, and they included large quantities uh, of red ochre, which is powdered hematite with, with their dead. And so as the story goes, again, um, these folks apparently vanished mysteriously and another group of people moved in uh, with different mortuary practices and material culture. Um, the thing about this story is it's not an indigenous story, it's largely a western uh, and a story that has been imposed on Wabanaki history here in Maine and just for the audience Wabanaki refers to people of the dawn or people of first light and it's a term that the tribes in Maine use collectively uh, to reference themselves, the Passamaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Penobscot. And so this story uh, is not an indigenous story, but it shapes not only how others really think of our past, but also how we as indigenous peoples um, think about our past and archaeology's influence on it. In the early 2000s, uh, Dr. David Sanger, at, who was at the University of Maine, put out a paper that, you know, highlighting the reasons why this story is such a myth. And, um, but it's still used in kind of this public setting all the time. And I think it, it's a term that really alienates us from, as Indigenous peoples, from our past, because it is so tied to this narrative. Maybe you can both speak to this, the reconnections that are happening between Indigenous peoples and their past through these digs. It seems to be, is it, is it fair to say that's a relatively recent phenomenon? How has that gone? Do you, what, what are the reactions as Indigenous people have learned about this history that the digs have uh, shown? I would say uh, there's been a history of being wary of archaeology, archaeologists, people that come in, and you know anthropologists as well, uh, within the Indigenous community, having someone you know, that looks like you, that's from your community, sort of reworking the the tools that have been used to extract culture is definitely creating, I wouldn't say reconnect because that's not really, it, the connection hasn't really been lost from the past, but it's strengthening that connection to the past by looking at it in a different uh, lens through um, tools that wouldn't necessarily be accessible to indigenous communities without these sorts of specialized teachings and specialized um, professions. So I think it's strengthening the connection rather than reforging or even connecting in general. I would agree with that. And, um, you know, just as Isaac said, as indigenous peoples, we've always kind of maintained our connections to our ancestors through language and oral narratives, prayer, place, and practices. And so colonial kind of affronts on our culture and identity through genocide and religious conversion, um, assimilation policies have certainly cut some threads that once connected us to our past. But I see archaeology as one way to kind of deconstruct 
those influences and uh, for me the materials that our ancestors left for us to learn from are really free from that western influence and what you're seeing in that pottery shirt or that projectile point is indigenous agency and that's unclouded by anything that's you know kind of not indigenous so it's really special that we can do that we can have access to that yeah the artifact is the artifact and it tells the story it tells when you dig it up right it does absolutely bonnie maybe take us to the site of a dig how, how do you do your work how much of it is generally the hard work of sifting through dirt and rocks what are you looking for and can you talk about any memorable finds or interesting finds that you've come across Sure. Um, Well, every good archaeological excavation starts with a nice research design and an important research design and question that deals with trying to understand what it means to be human in a different time and place. What we do generally is we focus very heavily here in Maine on places that are currently threatened through climate change. Um, and uh, sea level rise. Many of our sites are eroding along the coast of Maine. And so our approach is to excavate in one by one meter units. We'll sift through uh, dirt and rocks, but also in Maine we have the shell heaps. And so there's a large quantity of clamshell, in some places oyster shell, that we also have to sift through as well. Um, in terms of my most memorable find, I would have to say that is um, was a drilled bear tooth that I found uh, early on in my career, and that uh, finding that piece of personal adornment really stuck with me in thinking about, you know, somebody actually wore this, and it wasn't something to get food with, and it wasn't something, you know, it was a little more personal, so that that's my most memorable. Isaac, what's the hardest part of doing these digs? Uh, I mean, you you you're literally getting your hands dirty, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, hardest part would probably be. Uh, it just depends on the site, really. Um, some some sites are filled with brambles. Um, other sites are filled with just the worst uh, undergrowth. It really just depends. And then if you're by yourself, you have equipment to carry. So it's, a lot, it's, it's very physically demanding. But I think once you get into the swing of it, it really becomes refreshing to be out in the field, to be doing this work and then ending the day and feeling, you know, somewhat, somewhat accomplished that you've done something at the end of the day. You can, well, so you can sort of look back at the, the holes you dug and, and say that you've done something, even though they're filled in. So... <laughs> even though your knees and back are a little sore, right? Yeah. I think you can't be somebody who doesn't who doesn't like bugs and, you know, isn't tolerant of, you know, some of Mother Nature's challenges to us I'm up here in Maine. <laughs> it keeps us humble, for sure. So I gather some of this work is being done in uh, Acadia National Park. What is being done to connect uh, or chronicle Indigenous history in what are now now national park areas? Well, I would say that, you know, the National Park Service, as an arm of the federal government, has a federal trust responsibility to federally recognized tribes. And because of that, uh, there are federal laws that guide how uh, they interact with tribal governments. And so managing um, and stewarding tribal heritage spaces in parks is part of their mission and, and part of their responsibility to not just the country, but also to the indigenous tribes that they have a government-to-government relationship with. Will that work change 
the history in our parks, in our preserved areas, do you think? I mean, is that now going to be hopefully part of the story that's told? Absolutely. I think there's um, a real movement right now to uh, get that story out. You know, Acadia National Park, much of it has been on the history of those folks who have uh, set that land aside and not looking kind of prior to that and what the park what meant to people prior to European contact. Take us back. In some cases, we're talking thousands of years ago that the, those are the folks that you are studying. What, what, do, what do most of us that don't do this for a living not know about the people who lived in Maine at this time? How many people? Where did they reside? What, what's the time frame we're talking about specifically? Isaac, do you want to take a stab at that? Uh, so generally speaking, about uh, well, now it's 14,000 years from now uh, in the past. Um, when the ice age is, uh, the ice sheet is receding from Maine and opening up land to be lived on along the coast. It's generally cooler, a lot cooler. The landscape doesn't look anything like it does now. It has a lot more what we call, I don't remember, I don't remember the exact phrase for it, but they're entry trees. So they're like birches, trees that'll come in and create the forest and then have the pine trees that we know today following. Generally speaking, in terms of animals, there's a whole bunch of moose, caribou in some places, bear, deer, and people mostly lived along the coast um, until um, the advent of birch canoes, which allowed us to go up into the interior of Maine. We don't know exactly, but we think that, you know, things like the birch bark canoe and uh, the bow and arrow came in about 3,000 years ago. Bonnie, do we have any idea how many people we're talking about? No, um, I tend to not speculate about that in part because we have to remember as archaeologists, we're only dealing, we only have a very small fragment of what was actually used and it's very difficult to um, uh, reconstruct populations based on a partial record. I will say though that um, generally uh, what we see is that people were hunting and fishing and gathering in much of Maine prior to European contact. We see evidence of corn primarily west of the Kennebec River and we do have evidence of uh, gourds in uh, the Penobscot River Valley um, much older than that probably around six or seven thousand years ago so we don't have a good handle on a lot of that and I think part of the problem is is there aren't enough archaeologists you know researching uh, this uh, life in Maine before European contact. So speaking of that, you are, of course, teaching students, and hopefully some of them will go into this field. How do you go about teaching students, and how do you use the digs to teach these lessons? I approach archaeology through an indigenous archaeology's lens, which means archaeology with and for indigenous peoples, and I work very closely with indigenous communities in Maine, Recently, most recently, it's been um, working with the Passamaquoddy tribe in excavations in uh, down east. And so what I do with students is remind them first that it's a privilege to be able to do uh, research on indigenous heritage spaces and that, you know, once to be very careful in how you do the work because once you excavate a site, of course, you can't put it back, right? So we have to be very careful and very thorough in terms of how we document 
the work that we're doing. But uh, part of the field school that I offer also includes an Indigenous language component where students will work with an Indigenous speaker to create language videos around archaeological concepts. And um, they also spend some time with Indigenous peoples as well. And so it's, uh, it's a very uh, well-rounded and I would say inclusive kind of archaeology that we offer, uh, archaeological experience that we offer at the University of Maine, and something I'm really proud of. I think the students get a lot out of it. Isaac, what's your favorite part of the whole enterprise? My favorite part is probably just realizing how interconnected the communities were, uh, and not just in Maine, but throughout the uh, North America. I think one of my first digs I found an arrow point made out of material from the northern side of Canada, so where Hudson Bay is. Having material come from all the way up there down and find itself in the ground in, in Maine, it, it just, you know, there's just that interconnectedness of trade and travel and and it's mind mind-boggling to think about how far someone had to how that piece of material got down there through just hands and canoes and walking and so it's just that's that's the most interesting part to me is interconnectedness yeah that had to has to blow your mind i, I can't imagine uh, you know the the effort it took i mean that's thousands of miles really right oh yeah yeah here in Maine, we have Mount Kineo, which is um, we call the Home Depot of our ancestors because that's the place where everybody, you know, that material is spread so far and it was just really a place of really great rock to, to make uh, stone tools and um, to work with and to help you survive. So um, it's an important place for sure. So finally, talk about future digs and projects. What's next and how much is left to explore out there? I imagine a, a whole bunch. Yes, well, I'll start with that. There are roughly 2,000 shell heap sites along the coast of Maine. And um, so for our future, I think at the University of Maine, we are going to focus pretty heavily on those coastal sites that are currently threatened by sea level rise and other things and development and other things. Um, because once they're gone, they're gone for good. You can't get them back. Part of the program at the University of Maine will include, you know, continued research at coastal shell heaps, as well as we will continue with our work and a pro in an initiative which call which is called the Midden Minders Initiative. It's a citizen science initiative where we enlist volunteers to help us measure erosion so that we can actually identify which sites are most threatened. Those are um, you know kind of my two areas um, and working more closely with the communities and giving them a greater voice in how we make those decisions about which sites uh, to focus on. Isaac, how about for you? Bonnie's in the area where a lot of uh, archaeology has been um, has has more roots there. Um, going further north, uh, it's a little little more in the weeds. So one of my main goals is to both fulfill my duties as a tribal historic preservation officer, but also get the community out and in touch with their culture through potential uh, digs um, and hopefully expand a little bit more on the uh, knowledge base of northern Maine as there's there's a lot around but just not a lot of people who have really done much work up here. Bonnie, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I meant to 
fold this into the questions earlier, but I, we did a podcast with Kat Allen not too long ago, um, and she mentioned that she was working with you. Can you maybe talk about the collaboration that you guys have? What are you looking at, and how are you collaborating? Kat is has uh, funding to look at our oceans, right? I mean, that's her area of expertise, and one of the things we know is that the ocean waters have um, changed in temperature over time, and we see evidence of this in the archaeological record because people, at about 5,000 years ago, are taking swordfish, and um, and they're hunting swordfish, which is pretty impressive given the technology and the transportation, you know, the types of watercraft that they had. Um, and so, one of the projects that she and I are working together is trying to get uh, resolution on the dates of when those swordfish were in uh, the Gulf of Maine. And so we've submitted some swordfish samples for dating and um, hopefully that will help us to uh, refine uh, our understanding of shifting temperatures in the Gulf of Maine. So um, there's a lot, a lot that archaeology uh, can do to help inform environmental questions, particularly in the past. So I really enjoyed working with Kat, and this will be a good project and a great contribution to understanding past environments and climate change. Fascinating work. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your stories with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for checking us out. You can find all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Drop us a note if you have a question or comment. Our email address is mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.